Welcome to Good Medicine Explained. I am your host, Dr. James R. Brown. This is episode number 24 for the week of December 27th, 2020, and the final episode of season number one. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my explanations of various health disorders and medical conditions. As a physician, I've come to realize that while our professional gift and talents are geared towards saving lives, what we accomplish more often is an extension of life beyond what natural circumstances would allow. However, the highest virtue in the healing process is to also improve the quality of that life which has been extended. This episode today is one that I have wanted from the very beginning. This is an opportunity for me to have a conversation with my podcast team, specifically Lauren and Natalie. You've heard me on all of my episodes give them my appreciation and thanks for what they do to make each episode happen. And it's my real blessing to have a conversation with each of them today uh, as we close out uh, 2020 and the final episode of this year. Uh, For those of you in the listening audience who do not know, Lauren and Natalie are both my daughters. Lauren, I'm happy to announce, is back home for Christmas from Nantes, France, uh, where she actually lives and works. And Natalie, my lovely daughter, who goes to San Jose State, is also home for Christmas holiday. And so this is an opportunity for the three of us to get together and converse about this year's events and season. And actually, I'm interested in hearing uh, their opinions of what they would hope for in the years to come as far as the healthcare system in the United States is concerned. Lauren represents the millennial generation, and Natalie represents uh, Generation Z. So I'm going to ask Lauren and Natalie a series of questions, and then uh, they will give their responses, and we'll just have a nice conversation amongst us. So the big health issue, obviously, of 2020 was the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. And in my opinion, this ushered in the demarcation of the 21st century. Uh, Clearly, uh, the world was not prepared for such a devastating virus, and it's had global impact, uh, but most pronounced, I believe, here in our own country, the United States. So, Natalie, being a resident here in the United States, how did this impact you from your perspective? Um, Well, I had to come back home from school. So uh, as a freshman, just like getting used to the college life and then all of a sudden stopping that, I struggled a little bit 
reminding myself, oh, I'm in school and I still have to keep working when I was actually back home. So it was definitely hard differentiating, um, I guess, my responsibility of being a student versus like my home life and like relaxing because I had been so used to life up there, even though it was only my first semester. So I think um, it was hard just to manage my time. And also, there was a lot more anxiety for the population in general, but I think especially just not knowing if you were to get sick, like how it happened, because there's so many different ways and it's airborne. So I think it, it did create a lot of anxiety, but that was my experience. No, you managed it well, I think. And, and Lauren, being that you were living in France, what was your perspective? Well, I remember before I had moved, because I just moved in December 2019, I had been wanting to go back for a while, and I had a job opportunity to do it, and I just remember thinking to myself, oh, you know, what if, uh, worst case scenario, something happens where I can't see my family, and not knowing just a couple months later the borders would close and I'd be in a foreign country by myself. Uh, I hadn't lived in Nantes before, so I didn't really know anybody. Um, so I think just mentally it was quite challenging, feeling uh, isolated already and trying to, get, uh, trying to get acclimated to a new country and then having to deal with the pandemic, I think took a lot of mental strength. Um, but I'm thankful for the technology that we have because I could stay in touch with all my friends and family back home. Uh, on the physical front, though, I was very glad I was in a country that was responsible and responsive um, to the virus. I, I didn't feel in danger, and I felt that I was protected being in France. Uh, confinement was hard because it was quite strict. Uh, I kept some of the, the letters that we had to write. If I wanted to go to the grocery store or something, I'd have to fill out a form and sign, put my date of birth where I was born. So I know that's nothing that you guys experienced here in the States. Um, but I would say COVID did help me grow significantly this year and better understand the strength that I have uh, as an individual and on my own, being able to manage that in France. Uh, Lauren, what was it like for the general population? Who was uh, giving information about how to proceed uh, in the COVID era? Uh, was it coming from a Department of Health, or who was in charge of instructing the general French population? So usually around 8 o'clock, the president would speak. Macron would give an announcement at 8, and everybody would watch it on the television to see what new regulations would be put in place to just protect everyone. And then they also had the Minister of Health, who was giving more details around like what we would be allowed to do. So it was really those two individuals. Um, but for me, I got most of my information online, just seeing after they made those announcements, how that would impact me. Okay. And what was your impression as an American living in France and seeing the numbers of people that were infected here in the United States? It was very hard to see because everybody that I love and care about is here in this country and it was scary. I didn't know um, who would be, frankly, still alive when I came home. If I got the chance to come home, 
uh, it's challenging because you care and want to be there for your family, but there's nothing I could have even done. So it was also quite embarrassing um, because as an American, even if you're not in the country, you still are almost like the representative. So if people know you, my colleagues that do know me as an American um, before would make jokes in the beginning and then it got quite serious to the point where people just felt sad for me and for my country. So um, being American and seeing it from the sidelines it was it was very uh, challenging, I think. And Natalie, you were here with us uh, the whole time, and you know uh, I'm a physician, and you know I have my own practice, and I was doing testing on people and the urgent care. How did that make you feel? Um, at first, because there was so much uncertainty, that's when it definitely affected me the most, like once uh, cases started rising and then everybody became kind of unsure about how serious it really was. That's when I think I was the most worried and I was nervous and then again, like that's when the anxiety side kind of, um, not, it didn't, I wouldn't say that it took over. To be honest, I was pretty confident in you because you are a doctor, and I know doctors took all the precautions or should be taking all the precautions to keep themselves safe. So I wasn't, I wasn't as nervous for you specifically. It was more the patients who were coming in and they weren't taking the precautions. It was kind of like, well, why does my family have to be at risk out of somebody else's ignorance? Yeah, I think a lot of people, just to add on what Natalie's saying, like, forget that behind the doctors, the doctors have families too. So they're on the front lines and we're worried about our father's safety and who's going to be taking it serious or ignore the sign on the door and still come in and uh, you, you can't forget that all of these healthcare workers have families too. Well, I appreciate that. I think that uh, I took extra precautions because I have a family and I love you guys. And I just wanted to assure that my family would be at the utmost safety and I never really would put anybody uh, at undue risk if I could avoid it. Um, which kind of now brings me to the next topic I wanted to ask, and that is both of you are um, young adults here in the United States. And, of course, you have limited experience and exposure to the medical profession, mainly because you've been blessed to be very healthy and also, uh, I guess, because your mother and I have looked out for your well-being. But as you guys become adults, what is it that you would want this healthcare system in the United States to look like? And what kind of things would you hope uh, we can provide to all of the citizens here in the United States? I'll, I'll start with you, Lauren. Um, 
You know, I would have to say that my perspective changed just seeing how another country does it. Um, I'm lucky enough to be living in a country that has a great healthcare system. And I remember when I first went there, like uh, back in 2015, and I was teaching English. Uh, they have cobblestone in Europe, and I was wearing some shoes, and I twisted my ankle, and uh, I just remember limping and just like, oh, whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it when I go home. Lucky that you had taught me how to do that. But I remember my colleagues just shocked and looking at me and concerned that I would continue to work and continue to push through the day, having twisted my ankle pretty severely to the point that I was limping. Uh, and I think that's a very American kind of perspective that will just kind of take the pain and keep going so we don't have to deal with the healthcare system or or um, it's not as severe and for other people um, in another culture, uh, the day's taken off or you go immediately to the doctor. Or, uh, and I uh, would say that because I've had those experiences and seen the reactions of other people reacting to um, how I uh, take care of myself should something happen, um, I've realized that there is a lack of just basic care that we provide to the citizens in America. Um, there's convenience in the sense that if you do uh, want to get things over the counter like uh, ibuprofen or, or an Advil, that's something that we can do in America, whereas it's quite regulated in France. Um, but to what extent do you take convenience over the cost? Uh, so there's been a, f a couple times in my life where I've seen, uh, like a friend had an awful asthma attack where she almost died and didn't want us to call the ambulance. This is when I was in school in San Francisco because she didn't want to have to pay the bill. That's something that I would never have to worry about if I had an asthma attack or uh, I do have severe allergies, something happens to me in France, I know I can call and get care and not go away in thousands of dollars of debt. So those are the basic things, like I would say not having to fear that we can get help, we can call the ambulance and it won't cost us significant uh, amounts of money. That's something I would like to see, or the extra charge because they had to come at night time. There's just like basic things that even thinking of it off the top of my head, other countries I would say take for granted because for us, we just don't have that option unless you have enough money to uh, take those risks. Mm. How about you, Natalie? What do you think in the future about the United States you would want to see? Well, as you were saying earlier, thankfully I, I don't have too much experience. We've been pretty healthy. Uh, I've never, I've not had to go to the hospital for anything severe. Um, but I think a big issue is there's a lack of clarity and that ties in with the, the money issue. Um, because sometimes it can be unclear, like whether you've paid the full amount. Mm -hmm. So what you're both talking about is one of the main complaints that I have, even as a physician, is the um, delay and the expense that comes forward. Say, for example, uh, I were a master chef in a restaurant, and there are people 
that are coming to have a meal and I prepare the meal for them and they leave the restaurant and they get their bill one month later and it's at that point that they discover how much the meal and the evening actually costs them. That's essentially what we do here in the United States. There's no upfront uh, disclosure of how much you're going to pay. And this is the only sector in our country in which there's no advance notice or awareness of what the expenses are. And when you get hit with the bill, you know, three, four weeks later, we're all astounded at how much uh, things cost. And we also have no opportunity to do any cost comparison or, or any type of uh, disclosure of where the service might be less expensive. Everyone in the United States uh, wants to be treated at the top-of-the-line uh, facilities, but we seldom uh, disclose all of the expenses, and not every American citizen uh, is able to uh, become a uh, consumer of health care uh, the way others are. We do have a disparity. I wanted to ask you, just on behalf of questions that I've received as, you know, a doctor's daughter, that there's this assumption that it's the physicians that are living large and making up all these, like, prices. And so just to provide clarity to people, is it really you, the physicians, that decide the costs of the health care system that people are uh, having to participate in? Or who, who are the people that actually determine how much things will cost? So uh, it's not the physician by no means. You guys know that. But um, we're the upfront individual and identity. The real, uh, they have what are called cost managers uh, at hospitals and at uh, pharmaceutical companies. And they run their analytical uh, evaluation of operating expenses and other uh, costs for their organization and that's how they make a determination of what the cost is. Um, from the physician's perspective though, sometimes we are uh, forced by what we receive from insurance companies to uh, ratchet up our expenses. So, so for example if I ask an insurance company for one dollar for the service that I've rendered, uh, they may come back and offer me 89 cents rather than one dollar because they're viewing me from their large organizational system and they uh, expense out uh, the healthcare dollars based on the number of practices and hospitals and other services and so as a result, if my operating expense is a dollar, but I'm only going to get 89 cents, I in turn will now charge a dollar and 11 cents just to get the one dollar that I actually need for my expenses. And that's how our healthcare costs 
tend to run higher. Uh, the other problem, of course, is because I've made my cost to the rate of return that I get from my insurance company, anyone who's paying cash has to pay what I would charge an insurance company, even though the insurance company is going to pay less than what I ask. So if I tell the insurance company my cost is a dollar and eleven cents, the insurance company would pay me one dollar. But if it's a cash patient who's paying me, I have to charge them a dollar and eleven cents. Because if I don't, then the insurance company will claim that I am defrauding them, that I'm frauding them of my expenses. So those are some some of the outside complications of this healthcare system. Um, so let me just kind of conclude and wrap up a little bit of this discussion. Are you optimistic about how we can modify and change healthcare system in the United States for the 21st century? Lauren? Um, I would say there's a lot that can be learned from this uh, COVID example of how we were not prepared. So I don't think optimistic is the best word, but I would hope that people who are responsible for providing care to American citizens would take in mind the lessons learned from COVID, but we'll just have to see. I think it's up to the patients and the citizens of the country to be vocal and to ask for the care that they would like and um, put their make their voices heard so and put pressure on our system to make it better so that we're not ever having to go through another COVID situation again. How about you, Natalie? Are you optimistic about the future of healthcare in the United States? Um, I do agree with Lauren, but in the future, yes, I am optimistic. I think there's always opportunity for change. So it's just whether or not people decide to make that change. Um, but I do know that there's also, there's not a lot of general knowledge that people have of the healthcare system. And so I think um, explaining why things should be changed would be a big help to make that change. And so I think more people need to do the work to um, look through the issues that's happening and say this, this, and this is what's wrong and this is how we could change it, or this is how we want to change it. And um, once people start doing that and thinking about that, then I think there's a good chance that we'll make a change. Okay. Well, we, you know, we're speculating right now, and we don't know. Uh, clearly, we're hopeful that uh, we will, as a nation, come to a more compassionate understanding of what it feels like and what it's like to be a recipient uh, of uh, health delivery. And I am hopeful that as I'm getting older uh, and I observe uh, my mother, your grandmother, 
and uh, other uh, people in the older generation before me, I hope that we have uh, better care and better services than what is offered to uh, the seniors, especially because of the difficulties that they went through in their lifetime, World War II and Korean War and even Vietnam and all of the challenges that have been experienced in the United States, we don't need to pressure and stress uh, our seniors. That's my personal opinion, especially about their health care. Well, I believe this was one of my favorite episodes uh, for season one uh, to have my podcast team and my daughters with me to share this moment with you. Uh, If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you may submit your questions there through direct message. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or substitute for your own personal physician, nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. Finally, I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Susan Moore, uh, a family physician <clears throat> who graduated from my alma mater, the University of Michigan. Um, Dr. Susan Moore was a beautiful family physician who practiced uh, in the Indianapolis, Indiana area, and she uh, contracted COVID-19 on November the 29th. You may have seen on the news her personal FaceTime uh, experience in the Indiana University health system where she uh, received less than adequate care uh, and uh, she actually recorded her account of the events um, of what happened when she presented to the hospital on December the 4th of this uh, month. Uh, She was told that her condition was not significant and that she should go home uh, despite uh, her physical complaints and actually despite the healthcare team that was caring for her, knowing that she was a fellow physician. Um, As she continued to advocate uh, for herself, uh, they discovered that she indeed uh, did have serious problems, uh, but they continued uh, to ignore her, and uh, she uh, was released on December uh, the 7th, Within 12 hours of her release, uh, her condition worsened and she uh, went to another uh, nearby uh, hospital in Carmel uh, called Ascension St. Vincent, 
Um, unfortunately, on December the 10th, uh, her condition deteriorated and she was placed in the ICU and uh, she died on <clears throat> December the 20th. Dr. Susan Moore uh, is survived by her 19-year-old son and both of her parents who are uh, suffering from dementia. So for all of my colleagues uh, who've given the ultimate sacrifice this year, thank you. Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart.